I mean, if when I started my career, I'd said I'd given a completely precise and accurate forecast of solar growth to 2020, there's no way I would still have a job. People would have laughed me out of their offices. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to the first episode of the Earthlings podcast, your podcast about what it's like to be you, a human in the 21st century, and all of the near-term decisions we get a chance to make about our collective future. My name is Lisa Ann Pinkerton, and I'm one of your co-hosts. I am a former NPR environmental science reporter, and now I run public relations for companies that are involved in the energy transition. And I also run a women's organization for people in this space. And since this is our first episode. I want to apologize for some of the mic noise that you might hear on my end throughout the show. I'm still learning this new microphone and promise that we will do better next time. I want to introduce to you my intrepid co-host, Christian Roseland. Hello, my name is Christian Roseland. I'm a writer and energy wonk. I've been writing about the energy transition for over a decade, including running the PV Magazine USA site and working for RMI. And I'm super excited to welcome you to this, our first show, where we look at the big issues of what it means to be human in the early 21st century, technology, environment, and everything that's going on that impacts us in our world today. I'm particularly excited about this first show, which is about the future of energy. And I think that underneath the question of what the future of energy will be like, there's actually another question, which is what we can know and what we can't. This does come on the heels of a pretty significant report, the IPCC's sixth assessment report, Working Group One, pretty heavy report talking about the seriousness of what we're facing with the climate crisis, which has already begun. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it right now, droughts in the Pacific Northwest leading to greater forest fires, Hurricane Ida going all the way up to New York and across the world. We're seeing these more extreme weather events, and that's what the IPCC report says, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that weather is going to get more extreme, that sea levels are going to rise, the Arctic sea ice will disappear, and that you know temperatures are going to increase and that humans are to blame, full stop. And for me, this report, it didn't say much that was new, but it was more pointed in the fact that this is happening, humans are to blame. And for me, once you recognize that you are influencing a system, well, then you have some control over your own actions. And my hope is that people will recognize that, yes, we're contributing to a changing climate and we have about 10 years to make some dramatic changes or suffer the worst effects of climate change. And and we have agency to do something about it. Absolutely. Yeah, 10 years. I mean, that's in a previous IPCC report, they made that pretty clear that if we want to try to keep long-term warming below one and a half degrees Celsius, that we need to cut emissions 50% in the next, by 2030, which let's be honest, this is a really, this is a big challenge. This means massive change. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I think it's difficult for us as humans to really think that far into the future because you want to satisfy your most immediate needs and, you know, present self always overtakes future self in terms of what you're going to do. This is why, you know, habits are so hard to break or good ones are so hard to form. That's why I'm excited about our show because we're going to talk about these things and we're going to help 
to sort of illustrate what's coming and how we can make those best decisions because there are solutions available. And one of the people we're going to talk with on the show today illustrates how we could cut some of our carbon emissions pretty dramatically within 10 years. Yeah, definitely. Or 15. You know, I think that's a really important point. We still have agency. And that's something that this latest report was pretty clear about. You know, the degree of warming to a large degree is dependent on the amount of carbon that we put into the atmosphere. And if we stop putting carbon into the atmosphere, that Shocker. solves the problem. Now, there are <laughs> feedback loops, you know, but, but, you know, this is the other part is there, there's these feedback loops. And this is where it gets pretty scary is that there's these things that we're doing that sort of accelerate them, like the loss of sea ice means less heat is reflected back into space. You know, there's the melting of the permafrost and the methane escaping. Some of this stuff is really science fiction or mm-hmm. movie bad. And the thing is, we can't control these feedback loops, but we can control what feeds into them right. and triggers them. And, and, you know, the other thing is, is that this isn't something that we get no. to ignore. We have to deal with this. This is the future. This is the world that we're heading into. This is the world that our children are going to live in. We got to deal with this one way or another. Absolutely. You know, I found a button today. It says the earth is a (laughs) (laughs) co-op and I bought it. I'm like, oh, I want to take that home with me. (laughs) And for me, it really sums up what it's like to be an earthling. We are all here together. We get a chance to collaborate and work together to solve these issues. And it's only going to be successful if we work together. Everybody has to participate. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's funny, we, we're talking, this is about predictions, right? And you can't predict the future, but there's this whole industry of forecasters. Mm-hmm. And so they're not predicting the future. They, they're doing forecasts and modeling, but it's a little complicated here because it's kind of, we'll get into all of those differences. Um, there's I'm too excited. many unknowns. Yeah, we'll get into this stuff. I'm excited that our guests approach this from multiple angles. You know, we have some people who've been doing this for a long time, but are working on fairly short time frames and have a lot to say about the things they've learned. We have other people who are modeling, like, what's this going to be 15 years out? And then we have our third guest. Wow. Big picture stuff. It's exciting. Yeah. I think a lot of the changes that are going on are exciting, to be honest. They are. I mean, if you look at just like take the solar industry, for example, costs have dropped 70% and year over year. The industry is just breaking records in terms of installed capacity, blowing out all of the predictions and the forecasts that we were relying on. And then you've got the Department of Energy saying that solar needs to grow at a rate uh, that is triple or quadruple by 2030 so that we're, we're generating as the renewable energy that we need. It's almost as if like part of me thinks, oh, well, the industry has shattered records year over year. So We'll definitely quadruple by 2030, but nothing is set in stone. Yeah. That, again, back to this whole thing about what we can know and what we can't. There's a lot of people who are saying, oh, we definitely can't reach these things. There are a lot of people who are saying, oh, you know, the future is going to look a lot like the past. You know, to me, that's sort of a priori absurd because the future already doesn't look like the past. You know, as we move, as we move into climate change, that creates its own reality of things that won't work. I mean, I think about the recent disruption of the gas supply that came in the wake of Hurricane Ida in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, I'm sorry, but there's going to be disruptions. There's going to be change. And, you know, some of that change 
it's hard to know what direction it'll take. Our last guest talks about various different scenarios that we could anticipate and perhaps a dark horse like AI comes in and shakes everything up for good or it could be for bad. I hope it's for good. But, you know, we could talk all day long about this, but you're not here to really hear about us. You want to you yeah. meet our guests and we want you to meet them as well. Christian is really close to our first guest, so I'm going to let him introduce her. Her name is Jenny Chase. She's the head of solar analysis at BNEF. She's someone I'm lucky to have known for a number of years. And she's the author of a book, Solar Finance Without the Jargon. So the first thing you should know is that there's always more solar than you think there's going to be. And there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the cost of solar has come down really quickly. And secondly, it's always difficult to forecast when governments are going to bring in some kind of policy that incentivizes solar growth. And these two things are actually, uh, they, they feed back on each other. The more solar you build, cheaper it gets. The cheaper it is than you expected it to be. And there's more solar. So, and we tend not to identify booms. So, Suddenly, you'll have Vietnam building four gigawatts, and you'll be like, where did that come from? And that's why our forecasts, which only go two years out, so they're not even proper forecasts. They're more like estimates of what's in the pipeline and what's being built right now. They're often, they're usually actually an underestimate. And that's one of the problems with even short-term forecasting. Right. So how do you think this influences the growth of renewable energy? If, if, if all the predictions are overly conservative or underestimating the growth? I don't think it's a huge issue anymore, to be honest. I think there is enough investment going into the sector. And we are finally seeing governments do some really quite ambitious target setting. That's probably where it's been most harmful, actually, that governments have set fairly undemanding targets because that's what analysts said were possible. But now we have China saying they'll be net zero before 2060. We have a lot of European countries saying that they'll get to, to net zero around that time. There's an increasing consensus that we were being too conservative in the past, and we do just need to figure out some problems around integration, which are probably solvable. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if when I started my career, I'd said I'd given a completely precise and accurate forecast of solar growth to 2020, there's no way I would still have a job. People would have laughed me out of their offices. And I think possibly the same for governments, even ambitious governments. But it's great to see that I think actually politics and the world is catching up with where we, with radical systemic change. Uh-huh. So we're talking here about forecasts. Obviously, I think that the IEA and others have been very careful to say what a forecast is and isn't, and that it is you yourself have said in your book, forecasts are not predictions of the future. And yet they're often used as predictions of the future. So, and then there's this whole other aspect, which is modeling. Can you, just for the sake of clarity for our listeners, can you spell out what is a for, the difference between a forecast, a prediction, and a model? I think forecasts and models are quite closely linked. Um, My team does forecasts without modeling, but we only do it two years out. If you want to model something, you do, it's like a model train set. You're creating a world in miniature and you're seeing what happens if you, for example, set a toy train on on the tracks. And you might also set a second toy train going a different way and see what happens. 
Um, so the idea of modelling is to create a simplified version of the world, where how if you change certain inputs, the outputs change. The problem, the problem ultimately with modelling is it is a simplified vision of the world, and so it doesn't behave exactly like the real world. Also, sometimes you don't actually know what the correct inputs are, and that also causes problems. Whereas predictions, I think, can be much less grounded. I might predict that we'll have 50% solar in electricity supply by 2050, but Bloomberg NEF modeling and therefore forecasts doesn't, doesn't have that. You wouldn't normally have a forecast without some kind of, of mod, or not a long-term forecast without some kind of modeling behind it and some kind of methodology. Whereas predictions don't really have to have a methodology. So, you know, if I'm kind of stuck on, on how I feel a little frustrated that forecasts are conservative, uh, I understand why. Um, and it makes me think about other forecasts that we are basing our decisions on, such as climate change. And, um, I'm, I mean, do you think the climate, the, the outlook for climate change is worse? Than what the IPCC and others are are modeling and forecasting, just based on the fact that you know your forecasts are more conservative. It's a thing that worries me as a human being. I don't know anything about climate science, but I know that the IPCC outlooks are based on a consensus. And wherever you have a consensus forecast, you are going to move towards a more conservative viewpoint. I think, and. If you have a climate forecast that everyone has to sign off on, it is going to be more middle of the road. Not least because you probably, as climate scientists, have more chance of being taken seriously if you are not alarmist or if you are seen as not being alarmist. And that worries me a lot. I think we should take climate change incredibly seriously and mitigate it as quickly as possible. Just on the, on the consensus thing, I have noticed that so Bloomberg NEF, we used to be, we started as a clean energy firm. And then our modelling, our long-term modelling was pretty basic on coal, gas, nuclear, and quite good on solar and wind. We have, started, we have hired some teams to work on oil and gas, which is great, because you have to understand these components of the energy mix to do them accurately. So we brought new knowledge in, but that does also force our forecast towards a less extreme position because people who understand the existing oil and gas industries have a more conservative view on how they will develop. They don't think that they will just go away and die, amazingly enough. And this, and of course, they have lots of knowledge to back that up. They, they know how these things work. They, they, they may be right, but... It does mean that we get we go towards a more conservative consensus, whereas before we just kind of hand waved the problems that would be there, and we were happy and ignorant. But we might have been more accurate by hand waving the problems because innovation will help us solve some of those problems as they come up. Well, that was fascinating. These analysts being so conservative has always frustrated me, but I get it now why things are the way they are. She, Jenny was really, really helpful in explaining sort of the mindset of being an analyst and sort of what this world is really about in terms of, of making. Yeah. And what they have to deal with, you know, they have to deal with mm -hmm. the fact that they're, they're dealing with some answers that they give, which may be the more accurate ones are not answers that will be accepted, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Or believe, like, oh yeah, get out of here. That's not gonna happen. You know, I mean, what are, it, 
It reminds me of the financial sector. Same thing. One person invests in one, one hedge fund or whatever invests in something and everybody uh-huh. goes and invests in it. And then when something, when that investment goes south, everybody's like, oh, well, it's not my fault. Everybody yep. was investing yep. in it. So, okay. So we've talked to someone now who tells us why the predictions and the forecasts being made are the way that they are. And, and I think that's super useful. And, and, you know, keeping in mind that Bloomberg New Energy Finance has some of the most aggressive forecasts out there. Uh, and but that by aggressive, we mean closest that's to reality later on. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Without well, looking yeah. crazy. So, <laughs> you, you know, this begs the question, like, what can we do? And I think that this is a this is another mm-hmm. set of forecasting and scenario planning where you ask a different you ask a different question. You ask the question of what's possible? What can we make happen? And this is why I liked talking to Rick O'Connell is because our next guest is because he really laid out like this is what we can do in the next 15 years. Oh, and by the way, do affordably, which is huge. You know, we can we figured out we've, we've mapped this out at the system level. And, you know, there's some technical dimensions to this work, which I think are not insignificant and which have gotten a lot more sophisticated over the last few years. And some people would actually say that 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 our our next guest uh, was actually very aggressive in his scenario planning, because most scenarios are looking at how do we decarbonize our energy system? Yeah, by which, by the way, <laughs> right? Very comfortable. Let's go back to, very comfortable. Let's go analysis. back to the IPCC here. Let's go back to the special report on 1.5C. 2050 isn't good enough. If, if we wait till 2040, no. 2040 decade, 2040s to decarbonize, we're fried, you know? Yeah, like Literally. it's like no Literally that fried. we have to, you know, again, IPCC special report on 1.5C came out several years ago, not the recent one. It says if we don't cut emissions in half economy-wide globally by 2030, we can't stay below 1.5C. So, you know, Rick, I think mm-hmm. Rick takes a look at like, okay, what can we do in the next 15 years meaningfully in the power sector? And I, I, I think he really comes up with some interesting answers. So, I've said his name a couple times now. Our next guest is Rick O'Connell. He's the executive director of Grid Lab. And he did a report with the, or Grid Lab did a report with uh, the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, the 2035 report. Let's talk to Rick. Also wanted to think about what are the near-term targets we can get to with the technology that we have. So realizing that 2050 and 100% is far away, but what could we do in the next 10 or 15 years? Could we get to 80%? Could we get to 90%? And what does that look like from a cost perspective? Because one of the reasons we might want to decarbonize the grid faster than 2050 is that we want to use the electricity sector. We want to use electricity to decarbonize other sectors. So to get rid of fossil fuels and transportation, you know, move from oil to electric vehicles, get fossil fuels out of buildings, so electrified buildings. And so having a clean grid is really important and having it sooner. So we ended up settling on 90% by 2035. The one neat trick uh, that we did is we kept the hydro, you know, our existing carbon-free hydro nuclear fleet, um, and we kept most of our gas fleet to fill in the gaps right, where we didn't have the other resources like wind and solar. So gas fleet provided about 10% of our energy over the year. Wind and solar provided 70%, and then hydro and nuclear provided the other 
So we got to really high levels of carbon-free generation in a much shorter time frame than uh, most people had been thinking about before. Yeah, Rick, I wanted to ask you, why did you choose 2035 instead of maybe 100% by 2050? We've seen a lot of people pegging 2050 as sort of their target. Why did you go for 2035? Well, you know, predictions predictions are hard, especially about the future. And we, you know, we knew that there were these challenges out to get to 100% and out to get to 2050. And we wanted to sort of pull the time frame back and see what we could do in the near term. We actually looked at 2030, um, and 2030 is pretty aggressive. Uh, so 2030 is pretty hard, you know, just in terms of being able to install that many gigawatts in the time. Now, you know, one of the things that comes up to me uh, I paid a lot of attention to what other nations are doing. Obviously, Denmark is running at about 50% wind and solar, almost exclusively wind. Uh, other than that, I, we've never run a nation-level grid on more than 50% wind and solar. So how do we know that these high penetrations, like the 70% you modeled or even more, are going to work on nation-sized grids? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Christian. I th- so my first answer is that you know, we use pretty sophisticated software models. So we used a tool called Plexos, which many of the grid operators around the U.S. use um, to model the national grid on an hourly basis. So we modeled every hour for seven different weather years, years that included things like polar vortexes and extreme heat or extreme cold. So we're confident that the system is going to work. Uh, but then the other way to think about it, and maybe this is a better example, right, is to run a grid on high levels of wind and solar on an annual basis, right, so to get to 70% annually, first you have to run it at high percentages in in some hours, right? And it turns out we're actually already doing that in the U.S. So if you look at California, if you look at Texas, grids in the Midwest like SPP and MISO, they're already hitting 70 80% on an hourly basis uh, for a handful of hours a year. And those handful of hours a year are growing, right? And so that's really what we're going to do is we're just going to take those years, those those hours where we're already running at these high percentages and just grow them, do it more hours of the year. So I think we've already, in some way, already kind of proven that we can we can do it, that we can run these grids. Yeah, and and Rick, you mentioned, I mean, it's pretty ambitious, right? Ninety uh, percent uh, by twenty thirty five, and and the report sort of makes the assumption that we'll do this because we'll have strong policies. So my question for you is, you know, we have an an administration now that would help us towards that goal. And my question for you is sort of what about market forces? I mean, is this something you think the market could do on its own or do we absolutely need policy to achieve uh, your vision here? I think that's a lot of the question that people ask. And I think it's a really good question. They're like, well, hey, look, if, if wind and solar are so cheap, you know, why do we need a policy? You know, why do we need a carbon-free policy to mandate it? Um, you know, won't the market just sort of choose the lowest cost resource on its own? And so there's there's two reasons. And we we actually modeled in our 2035 report, we looked at what most people do, this thing called, called business as usual, you know, as if nothing changes. In other words, if we just made economic choices, we'd get to about 50% clean by 2035. So not 90%, about 50%. And and there's there's two reasons for that. Number one, you know, just in the modeling framework, you know, natural gas is just really cheap. Um, and we've got a huge natural gas fleet already built. You know, that cost is already paid for. So it's pretty cheap to just kind of burn more natural gas in the existing generation fleet that we already have. Um, so even though wind and solar are 
are low cost, they're they're still pretty close to being about the same cost as our natural gas, existing natural gas system. Um, but then I think there's something else that's sort of in the real world uh, that we come up against is that, you know, utilities don't always make sort of rational, you know, they're not, ex they're not a computer model where they're like, okay, if this resource is half a cent cheaper than that resource, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to, I'm going to move, I'm going to get rid of my old resource and move to my new resource. You know, there's sort of institutional uh, barriers to change. There's, you know, there's just inertia. Um, there's preference, right? People, you know, power system, you know, utilities feel comfortable with a certain set of resources and they feel maybe uncomfortable about moving to other ones. Um, so there's a whole host of reasons why, you know, kind of the economics alone wouldn't, wouldn't make this happen. And our, our power system is pretty heavily regulated and, uh, you know, it's not like people are just going to, you know, wind and solar plants and natural gas plants, they're not like potato chips, right? If somebody comes out with a tastier, cheaper potato chip, everyone's just going to buy those potato chips, right? It's a much more heavily regulated industry. Wow. Well, that's another take. Bold. Bold? Bold move, Cotton. It's bold. <laughs> you know what the funny thing is? It's very bold, and at the same time, it's fairly deterministic. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. this resource is cheaper than this resource. You know, we can do this for X number of dollars. We can meet X, you know, this amount of electricity demand uh, at these hours of the year. In some ways, I think that that's what makes a good bold scenario is if you're both bold and conservative, right? Like, okay, no new technologies here. We're not talking about new tech. We're just talking about mm -hmm. keep the nuclear power plants online, you know, keep the hydro online, add more wind and solar, already proven technologies, just add more of them. You know, it's, it's, it's looking at this in a way that is like, it's a, it's, it looks like a pretty safe bet in terms of this is how we can get there. And it's stuff that's already happening. Yeah. I mean, coal already dead in the water. Totally. No new coal plants are being built in the U.S. anyway, although no. like South Korea and China, totally different story. We're not going to get into that in yeah. this episode, not but in maybe episode. in another one. And natural gas is also uh, looking less attractive, but that's going to take some time, but it's all because of pricing. Yep. And yep. solar, wind, once you've installed it, it's free resource. It's, I even hear people talking about maybe in 30 years, energy as a resource will just be free. What, 30? Did she do 30? Yeah. I think she did 30. She, but she highlights the five main ones for us. Like, what if we do nothing? What if there's this dark horse technology that comes in and completely flips the script? So her name is Anna Evers-Browell, and she works for the U.S. Department of Energy. She's a statistician and an energy economist at TerraTech and a fellow at UT Austin. And we spoke to her about her scenario planning uh, for this report that she wrote for the government of Estonia. Yep. And by the way, some of the scenarios she included, one from Russia Skolkovo, which wasn't even translated into English. Mm-hmm. Yep. See, when you know, when you know Russian, you can get a lot further in life, not just about playing chess. Absolutely. But about planning for the future. So the idea was to see what are the major drivers of scenarios and perhaps no, not surprisingly, the major drivers are policy. So something that we or society decide to do and technology, uh, our know-how, our knowledge, um, our innovation, innovative 
thinking that could make things happen. So most of the scenarios fell into one of these two categories. My scenarios were um, innovation unleashed, uh, which described uh, basically a, a way forward that technology will show us uh, in the sense technology paired with governmental support and R&D and uh, fairly simple permitting for large scale energy projects. Uh, this is what could drive our path forward. This also gives really a big prominence to figures like Elon Musk and uh, Richard Branson, I called them entrepreneur kings. So these guys will have a disproportionate influence on in our society and our way forward because a lot of the innovations, because of the innovations they bring to the table. So this was the innovation scenario. The second one uh, was a big government scenario. So big government, big solutions. And as you can imagine, also this scenario has strengthened itself because of coronavirus and the, on average, uh, increased role of the government in our everyday lives. So that would be the scenario where government really uh, provides really generous support for new energy solutions. It, it might be picking winners and losers of the, in the technology. It may be encroaching on our privacy, but there's always a negative and a positive uh, in each scenario. So that's the big government one. There will be also competition between different countries for the best talent and the government wanting to uh, uh, attract the most talented researchers and innovators uh, to their country. You already see some of this happening. So the reality might be actually the mix of all of these scenarios. Um, and it, with the big government scenario, it's more likely that we end up with a renewed climate agreement uh, where parties come together and realize that carbon is a greenhouse gas that is global. Even if we put all the production in the world in the little island and produce all the widgets that the world needs and emit all the uh, CO2 on that island, still the problem will remain global. So. It's like a problem where everybody has to agree on a meeting time. Even if it's a seven o'clock on a Saturday, everybody has to show, otherwise the problem won't be solved. So we're facing the same problem with uh, climate negotiations, just very roughly speaking, but I think it's, it's a good illustration. Uh, then the next scenario uh, after the big government um, is, is in kind of a business as usual, a negative scenario that nobody really wants to happen. I, I've asked this question from my audiences at the webinar or in the classroom. Nobody wants this scenario. And this scenario is hotter climate, worse, like bad economy. Nobody wants it. But unfortunately, it seems that the likelihood of this scenario has increased uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, the gist of this scenario is that uh, Everybody's preferences are so focused on economic recovery that we ignore climate change for, say, the next 10 years. So we miss out on important opportunities. And as a result, we will have both a bad economy and a hotter world. This also not to mention that there will be parts of the society that will be 
uh, hit by all three. So worse economy, uh, worse health outcomes due to COVID, and also um, really bad environmental consequences. So uh, I really don't want this scenario to emerge because there will be really clear losers from this one. And then the last one is an optimistic scenario where there will be one technology that uh, will come and solve a lot of problems that we're facing right now. And there, we hear a lot about it, starting from cold fusion to uh, artificial intelligence to um, 5G. So there are many technologies out there that could be our savior. We just haven't quite figured out which ones. So, uh, and some of them are more likely than others and more advanced than others. So this is a scenario that uh, looks at a general purpose technology that will increase productivity and will be generally a positive driving force in the world that will let us achieve the Paris targets. So that's really interesting. Can you talk about the way that these, well, I mean, first off, do you see one of these scenarios playing out or a combination? And how do these scenarios interact with each other? That's a good question. I actually see a combination of them uh, playing out internationally. Uh, I do think that countries uh, that innovate a lot have really, um, so to say, laissez-faire with respect to entrepreneurship. Like Estonia, this is the country I'm from. I'm really proud of being from Estonia. I can name other names out there like Singapore, really known for their innovation. These countries could be the ones that are going to embrace uh, one of the two scenarios, such as um, Innovation Unleashed or the Dark Horse scenario that is uh, that is featuring AI. However, regionally, there might be some countries that cannot get past some of their economic issues, and they will be done generally facing the uh, worst, econ worst economy in, the, in a hotter world scenario, uh, even if it's regionally. We know that some regions are more prone to climate change impacts. Say Amazonian rainforests are um, are burning, uh, probably because of climate change, very with very like high likelihood. Russian taiga is um, melting, so um, it's it's a big strategic problem for Russia, uh, and it might be that uh, policymakers in different countries will be switching scenarios. So. Uh, there will be, of course, some path dependency, but I can imagine if Russian uh, government figures out that Taiga is really melting really fast and it's going to uh, create huge problems, which it will, I hope that they will change course, really, and um, perhaps jump to the big government solutions. So there are first signs of that, too. And we can uh, make similar speculations for different places in the world. So these are just a few examples. So to summarize, I feel like it will be more of a regional um, thing of which scenario will dominate. And um, there might be switches in the next 10 years when one of the countries chooses a path they're um, not happy with. Okay, well, I, you know, that blew my mind. 
insert mind blown emoji here. So I, I think at this point, like we just don't know anything. <laughs> What's new? There's really nothing to know. Um, we'll all just go through life blindly. We, it'll, work, it'll all work out great. We've, we've, nothing to we've see gone here. back to like that point. First, there is no mountain. Then there is a mountain. Wait, no, I, I screwed that one up. <laughs> I totally screwed that one up. First, there's a mountain. Then there is no mountain. Then there's a mountain again. Yeah, I, I mean, so uh, we're back to, you, we just, we can't know the future. And there's all kinds of things that things will happen that we won't predict, I think. And yeah. And, and I think too, what I liked about what she said, though, was that some of these scenarios it's not just one or all like different regions of the world are going to have different types of scenarios happening at any given time. And then also some regions might change their scenario halfway yeah. through, start out doing nothing, actually start doing something, start doing something, leadership changes, not doing anything. Yeah. I, th I th really think though, that one of the thing, one of the big things I see is as the impacts of climate change intensify and as it, the problem becomes more obvious, the political will changes. I mean, look, we can do things today that we couldn't do five years ago, right? So this, this arc moves pretty much in one direction in term there will be, but there's all these ups and downs, as you said, you know, changes that we've seen that in the United States, changes in leadership mean vastly different levels of ambition. But I think, you know, maybe it's back to that Martin Luther King thing, the arc of just the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I think it bends towards acting on climate too, you know, it, and maybe not in the timeframes that we need, but I see, I see intensified action, including from places that right now are, are frankly not taking this issue seriously. Mm -hmm. And I'll, honestly, we all have to take it seriously on some level if we're going to make any meaningful impact yeah. on the trajectory that we're going on. So I'm really glad that we chose this episode, this topic to be our first episode, because it is one of those, how do I say this? Central issues. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> one of those issues where action creates change. Yeah. And this gets to the question of like, what can you do as an individual? You know, like, what can you do? Mm -hmm. Because I, I, and I think that this goes back to another debate, which we are not going to get into on this podcast of like individual versus collective action, because, you know, okay, so you can put solar panels on your house or you can, this is one a lot of people don't think of, move closer to your job <laughs> so you're not commuting as far. Mm -hmm. You know, you can uh, take public transit. You know, there's all these other things. Those only get so far. Let's be clear. Right. At some level, there needs to be collective action. But I think that we're also seeing collective action. I mean, there's you, the Sunrise Movement in the United States has majorly shifted the political dialogue around climate change. You know, there are there are organizations and they're not the only organization. There are organizations that you as an individual can get involved in and make a much bigger change than you ever could make on your own. Not mm -hmm. Citizens Climate Lobby. Citizens same Climate thing. Lobby, Sierra Club. Giving people, yeah, giving people an, an outlet yeah. because to be active. You know, there again, you once you're part of something greater than yourself, there, there's this magnifier effect, and that's what it will take. It's not, it's not going to be everybody recycling. It's not even going to be everybody deciding to get solar. Not, not everybody can get solar. And renters, for instance, it's going to be something that involves us stepping out of ourselves and working together. Yeah. And, you know, thinking back on what Anna was saying on this dark horse um, scenario being AI, but maybe it's not AI. 
maybe we're looking back in five years and we recognize that COVID <laughs> was the dark horse that we needed collectively as a society to show us, hey, everybody can work from home if they want to. And that significantly reduces pollution and also gives people back a lot of their time to be more fulfilled and demonstrates that collectively as a planet, we can mobilize and change what we're doing very quickly. Yes. I, I hope that not everybody works from home though. I really prefer that the garbage collectors and the truckers <laughs> and a few other people continue to go to their jobs that actually physically happen somewhere. Absolutely. The nurses too. I would like them to keep showing up to the hospitals. That Agreed. that would be good. Um, but yes, but so many of us can work from home. You know, there, there's so many ways. Yeah. And, and I think that that's part of what we're looking at here is change isn't linear. You know, change doesn't mm -hmm. just... It isn't just like this slow plotting projection. Stuff happens. Stuff happens and it changes the way we look at the world and it impacts other things. And my son is totally into chaos theory. So this is this is right down right down his alley. But yeah, you know, that the that the that the world is this dynamic place where we do have a a role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think so Earthlings, if you take anything from today's episode. It's that you do have agency and you do have influence even in your small little world. And we encourage you to start looking at your world and how you can um, have uh, an influence and make a change to help us get to a better place, especially around how we are decarbonizing our world to reach the IPCC recommended targets by 2030. And have a stable, livable climate so that we all have a prosperous, beautiful 21st century. Absolutely. Thank you, Earthlings. And we'll see you on the next turn of this big, beautiful blue-green space flower. Hello, listeners. For those of you still tuned in, just a quick update here. Since we interviewed Dr. Browell, she has changed positions. She is now the Director of Energy Leadership at the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. Thanks so much for listening.